The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're in Revelation chapter 20. We'll finish the chapter today. Um, but by way of introduction, a few things. This passage is just loaded. I'm only looking at verses uh, 11 through 15, but it is just jam-packed of theology and implications and Principles, really, for practical living. How's your eschatology, by the way? How's your eschatology doing? Because everybody has an eschatology, whether you know how to spell that word or not, or whether you know what it means or not. Eschatology is your your view of the future, your philosophy of how the world is going to end. And everybody has an eschatology, whether it's biblical or unbiblical, informed or ignorant. You've got a philosophy of how the world is going to end, or at least how you think it's going to end. So that's why I asked, how's your eschatology? That's what Revelation really is all about. It's, And so it's been informing us of a biblical, detailed eschatology of how world history is going to end and transition into a future kingdom, literally on earth, and then into the eternal state. Uh, so it's a God-given eschatology. Uh, so that's why I ask, every religion in the world, every philosophy of the world has their own eschatology of how things are going to end. Um, that's why it is so important, and this book is so practical. Uh, and people will often, often ask, well, why are you preaching through Revelation to your congregation? You're going to bore your church, scare your church, confuse your church, or chase everybody away and kill your church. I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, the promise of Revelation 1-3 stands, blessed are those who study and apply the book of Revelation. So my answer to them is, I want my church to be blessed. I want the church to be blessed. Therefore, we're going to teach on Revelation and look and see how God will bless us as a result. So that's been our goal. Uh, Revelation provides the beautiful, perfect balance. Oh, another answer to the question of why are you preaching on Revelation is because, did you know that you can find Jesus in just about every chapter in Revelation, all 22 chapters? Shouldn't that be reason enough to preach on Revelation to a church? Because Revelation is Christocentric. It is Christ-centered. It's amazing. So we get to talk about and look at Jesus Christ in His glory every single week. And that's what churches need, to be healthy, to stay focused, to be powerful. That's why I preach on Revelation. And it's a perfect, beautiful complement to the Gospels because the four Gospels do speak of Christ in every single chapter. <clears throat> but for the most part, the four Gospels give a portrait and picture of the real Jesus. Primarily, Jesus is teacher, servant, and savior. And then Revelation is that beautiful complement, also true, where it portrays Jesus as warrior, king, and judge. And they have to go together because that's who Jesus is, depending upon your relationship to him. He's either your judge or your savior. So that's the beauty and the wisdom of God in giving the book of Revelation to the church. So we're going to plug on and head on to the exciting climactic conclusion of the book of Revelation and so we're going to be looking at 11 through 15. Follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15. This is after the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth called the millennium, which we talked about last week, and immediately after the thousand-year reign of Christ and his saints on the earth, and then there's the battle of with Gog and Magog and Satan, and then uh, Jesus destroys Satan and his armies and throws Satan into the eternal lake of fire. And immediately after that, verse 11 says this, John goes on, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So without a, a doubt, this is one of the most sobering passages in the entire Bible. This is the ultimate final judgment of God of unbelievers of all ages. That's what this is. This is called the great white throne judgment. And that's what it's about. And that's what it's emphasizing that 
God is going to judge everyone. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, before we do, <clears throat> I just wanted to clarify something. So we just talked about the millennium last week. And I will admit, and I've said this a few times, that eschatology, prophecy, the book of Revelation, prophecies related to the end times can be very confusing stuff for a lot of different reasons. And one of the reasons that trying to figure out a proper biblical eschatology is that so many different Christian authors and writers have such variant opinions on, on everything and all the details. And that's that muddies the water. Um, so I just wanted to give one example. Popular writer R.C. Sproul wrote a book called The Last Days According to Jesus, and it's pretty much on eschatology in the book of Revelation from his point of view. And R.C. Sproul, he's, he wrote a really good book on holiness, which we have on the book table. And then he wrote this book, a very unhelpful, confusing book that I think is confusing a lot of people, unfortunately. I just wanted to highlight two things that he said where he explains what a dispensational premillennialist is, which is what I am. It's people like us who look at Revelation and just take it literally at face value. And we interpret it Revelation like we would the Gospel of John. And uh, he summarizes our position. And here's what he says our position or my position is. Um, first of all, he says that people like me, in my view of dispensational eschatology, it's a recent view, it's a crass view, it's a carnal view, it's an unbiblical view, and he says, I have a very dangerous view. I'm a dangerous guy, but anyway. And then he says this, here's the eight main points of dispensational premillennialism, or my view, and then there's two things that he says, summarizing my view. Three, people like this guy, McManus, God has separate programs for the church in Israel. That's what he believes we believe, and I'd say, no, we don't. Same Lord, same salvation, same gospel, same millennium. Same eternal perspective, same scriptures. So that's a, a misrepresentation. And then he says, this is the one that, that caught me. And this is so common of many evangelicals who are amillennial, <clears throat> who think that dispensational, premillennial people like us are way off. And they say that we believe the following, quote, we believe that the church will ultimately lose influence in the world and become corrupted and apostate. It's like, Wow. So in other words, R.C. Sproul says that I believe that the church will fail, that the church will be defeated, that the church will lose its influence and pretty much go into null and void in history. I'm thinking, I don't believe that at all. I believe just the opposite. That's Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said that uh, the church, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's what I believe. Um, so... If you do get confused, don't allow somebody else to interpret your view for you to try to figure it all out. That was just why I wanted to bring that up, to hopefully clear the air and clear some confusion. Let's just stick to the biblical text, and that just makes life so much easier. With that, let's go ahead and look at the details of Revelation chapter 20, 11 through 15, on the great white throne judgment. And once again, three points of emphasis that I want to bring to your attention regarding this ominous day of judgment before the ultimate creator and judge of the universe, Almighty God. And by the way, this passage is happening in chronological order. Revelation happens in chronological, sequential order. And we've been pointing that out because you have the seven, you have church history, chapter 2 and 3, then you have the seven-year tribulation, chapter 6 through 18, then after the tribulation, Jesus Christ returns, you got the second coming, then the battle of Armageddon, and then he throws the Antichrist and the prophet into eternal hell, and then he binds Satan for 1,000 years in demon prison, and then he resurrects tribulation saints and Old Testament saints and gives them a resurrection body, and then begins the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth with his saints, and then at the end of that 1,000 years, he lets Satan out of demon prison, and then Satan... Uh, musters up some unbelievers and then they have the battle of Gog and Magog where immediately Jesus snuffs that out and devours all of his enemies with fire and then he takes Satan once and for all and throws him into the eternal lake of fire for good. That's where we left off. That is the chronology that John lays out. So it's chronological. So after this 1,000 year reign of Christ and after Jesus deals with Satan, then this happens right here. Chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. So let's go ahead and look at uh, point number one, and that's the worthiness of the judge. And the judge is God himself. He is perfect. He's perfectly holy. He's perfectly righteous. And that's point number one, and that's verse 11. So immediately after the thousand-year reign of Christ, 
Jesus judges the final enemies, Satan himself. And then this amazing thing happens in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. So I want to stop there. So all of a sudden, John is given the next vision and he looks up at the throne and he sees the one sitting on the throne. And all throughout Revelation on that great throne is God the Father. Now, keep in mind, God the Father does not have a body. We know that because Scripture says that. God is a spirit. But this is how he's being represented. So we can understand that he is the judge. He has ultimate authority and therefore... This is metaphorical language being given. We know that from the analogy of Scripture or other biblical passages that are clear. God the Father does not have a body. He's not some crickety old man sitting up there with a cane on a throne. He's Almighty God and infinite in the universe and all-powerful. He defies human language to even put Him into terms. This is the best that John can do through divine revelation. He sits on a glorious throne. And it's not just any throne because John just talked about 24 thrones earlier in the chapter which were probably resurrected saints sitting on thrones. And this throne is compared to those thrones because it's called a great throne. It's a bigger throne. It's an ultimate throne. It's the throne of God's authority, the king of the universe. That's why it's great. Not only is it great, it's a white throne. It is a pure throne. The one who sits on it is pristine, crystal clear, sinless, totally, perfectly holy. And that's why he is a righteous judge. That's God. God is a perfect judge. He's a righteous judge. He is the ultimate judge. God is holy, 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 says Scripture, and holiness can have nothing to do with sin. God has an aversion to sin. God hates sin. God must punish sin because He's a holy God. That's who this is talking about, this judge. Uh, So the great white throne judgment is going to happen with God presiding as judge. God the Father. Also, according to other scriptures, Jesus will also be there as judge. We know that from John chapter 5, where Jesus said at the time of resurrection, God has entrusted, the Father has entrusted all judgment to me. And then in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus said, I sit on my Father's throne. And then in John chapter 8, Jesus said that I and the Father judge together. I don't judge on my own initiative, but I judge with the Father. Because Jesus said in John chapter 10 that I and the Father are one. So who's the judge? Is it Father or Jesus? The answer is yes. It is God the Father and Jesus co-jointly reigning as the indivisible triune God of the universe. And the Holy Spirit obviously has a part as well since He is part of God or the Godhead. So this is the Father and no doubt Jesus is at His right hand also ruling and judging. And who are they judging? Well, they sat on the throne. Uh, the middle of the verse says this. This is an amazing statement here. It's amazing because of its simplicity. Because as humans, we always want, give me more information. Give me more dirt. Give me whatever it is. Right? Because we're so curious in our thinking. God doesn't do that here. It's just beautiful simplicity. Here's this throne. And all of a sudden, middle of verse 11 says this. From whose presence the earth and the heavens fled away. The earth and the heavens passed away. The earth and the heavens disappeared. Isn't that amazing? Wow! What earth and what heaven? The same earth and the same heaven that God created in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1 and 2 tells us what all of that entails. So everything that was created by God in Genesis 1-1 has now passed away. It is gone. Poof! Well, what happened to it? Well, let's look at Second Peter chapter 3. We've got to look at it because it's a parallel passage. It is the nitty-gritty details that we are looking for and fascinated by as humans. Look at Second Peter chapter 3. This is what John just says so nonchalantly. And he probably had Peter's epistle in hand because it was written earlier. And so John probably, you know, the, at least God knew that the saints already had Second Peter. They don't need all the details, but that's why he makes this kind of nonchalant comment that from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away, passed away, disappeared. Poof! Well, what happened to it? Well... God tells us in Second Peter chapter 3. Let's look at verse 1 and I'll just breeze through it real quick. This is amazing, the detail here. If you look at the Greek language, it is absolutely specific. It is graphic. It is picturesque. There's even an onomatopoeic word in there. I don't know how to spell that either. But anyway, I'll tell you where that is. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 of Second Peter. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you is Pastor Peter, Elder, Elder Peter, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that's Jesus, by your apostles. 
Verse 3, know this first of all, that in the last days, in the last days, okay, this is what Revelation is talking about, the last days, the consummation of history, the future, eschatology. That's the context. In the last days, at the end of history, mockers will come with their mocking. These are false religious teachers, but they're not religious. They're philosophical. They're scientific. They speak in scientific language. They don't wear a cleric's collar necessarily, but they claim to speak truth. They might even be an anchor person on the news channel. These are mockers. They might even work in Hollywood and get a big paycheck. These are mockers. False thinking, false ideology, false views of the future, false views of God, false views of the earth. That's who these are. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is your Jesus, church? You've been saying it. You Christians have been saying it for 2,000 years. Jesus will be here right away. And they're mocking us. Isn't that true? 2,000 years of mocking. But God is very patient. 2,000 years is nothing for God. He'll wait 2,000 more if he needs to, to fulfill his plan. Middle of verse 4, for ever since the fathers fell asleep in the Old Testament, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. That's what the mockers say. Jesus isn't going to return. Nothing dramatic and cataclysmic and new and different is going to happen. Your Jesus is never going to return. Revelation isn't going to be fulfilled like you say it is. That's what the mockers say. You Christians who take Revelation literally at face value, you guys are buffoons and kooks. It's all fairy tales. That's what they say. That's mocking God's word. Verse 5. For when they maintain this, these mockers, it escapes their notice. They forget that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. Boy, they don't realize that God created the world out of nothing, poof, instantaneously and amazingly and supernaturally. They forgot about that because they don't believe it. God's done some pretty amazing thing intervening in history is his point. He's going to do it again. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Not only that, uh, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. These people that mock us that nothing different and weird and deviating is going to happen in world history. These people forgot about the universal flood under the days of Noah. These mockers, they reject that belief. Verse 7, and then Peter goes on to the future. Here's what's going to happen. But the present heavens and the earth, the heavens and the earth of Genesis 1-1, where we live right now. All the earth, all the society, the stars, the planets, everything. The present heavens and the earth, by His Word, God's just going to say a word, and uh, by His Word, are being reserved for fire. The present creation, God's earth right now. God is protecting and preserving planet earth. Did you know that? He's protecting and preserving the solar system because He has a plan for this planet and our solar system. And nothing is going to alter His plan. That's what that word means. He is protecting. It is being reserved by God for a specific day, for a time of judgment by God in a specific way by fire. Nothing is going to change that. The second law of thermodynamics is not going to change it, but the second law of thermodynamics is actually just going to work in God's favor to fulfill his perfect plan. So nothing is going to uh, cause this plan to deviate. God's got the day in his mind eternally. Being reserved for fire. That's what's going to happen to the, to the heavens and the earth. That's how they pass away. That's how they disappear. Through fire. Not natural fire necessarily, but supernatural fire. At least the one who lights the match is supernatural, whether he uses natural means or not. Because we've got plenty of fire to go around, don't we? Just ten miles into the core of the earth is nothing but molten fire in this planet. So if we exploded, that would be enough. And every, everything in terms of matter, the ultimate fundamental building blocks are atoms, which are highly volatile and explosive and prone to nuclear holocaust and fire. God knows what he's doing when he says the world is going to be dealt with and judged by fire. He, he gives even more details. Kept for the day of judgment. So a time is coming. Uh, verse 8, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The whole idea is that God is eternal, so he transcends time. And he's also patient. He's waited two days. Or he's waited 2,000 years. He's got time. He's a patient God. Uh, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. God is patient towards sinners. He's trying to woo sinners to himself. Did you know that God wants to save people from wrath and judgment? Because he's a savior, a saving God. He is patient towards you. Not wish, look, at, look at the end of verse 9. A beautiful phrase. Not wishing, not desire. God is not desiring for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and be rescued and be saved. That's the God of the Bible. The saving, merciful God. But 
Despite this desire that God has, the, the human heart is so recalcitrant, hardened, rebellious, and sinful that many will reject the gospel that God has laid out. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is just an eschatological phrase that can refer to an immediate time, a long period of time, depending upon the context. Uh, the day of the Lord here refers to the end time, the day of the Lord, this time of judgment at the end of the age when the heavens and the earth will be judged by fire. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means unexpectedly, instantaneously, and in reality, in which the heavens, there it is again, will pass away. That's the same phrase in Revelation. They're just going to poof. The heavens are going to pass away. The created heavens. The solar system. With a roar. In the Greek text, that's that onomatopoeic word. And in Greek, it's like sizzle. This, this huge, this tremendous, rushing, sizzling sound that pierces the ears. And it's a sizzling sound of like burning fire. Sizzle. That, that also, sizzle is like an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like what it means is what that means. So the heavens are just going to poof, get caught up in flames, burn and sizzle like nothing ever heard in the history of the world. Get this. The detail is amazing in the middle of verse 10. And the elements, you know what that's referring to? The atoms. Because those are the most basic fundamental building blocks of all of matter. And the Greek word is very specific. The basic, ultimate, fundamental building blocks of all matter and creation. Well, well Peter didn't know 2,000 years ago about atoms. Well, God did, and God inspired Peter to write this down. As a matter of fact, Peter probably didn't even realize what he was writing, how profound it was, how scientific, how specific and detailed. Even the elements will be destroyed. An atomic nuclear holocaust by God. That's how the heavens and earth are going to pass away. Uh, will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, <laughs> evaporated, incinerated, eviscerated, gone. 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people as Christians ought we to be in our holy conduct before a holy God living in godliness? This should motivate us to holiness and to sober-mindedness. That's the point. Verse 12, because we as Christians are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. says it like three or four times. We get the point. Destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. The elements are going to melt. Can you imagine? That's why Joel says at the time of judgment, at the end of the age, that everything burns up and it says that the moon, as it were, turns to blood. That is just graphic because the atoms are melting. Wow. So this is portrayed and predicted, predicted in the Old Testament. It's going to happen. Really. Man, this is, this is like real biblical global warming. I now believe in global warming because it's right here. This is not Al Gore global warming. This is biblical global warming. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 13, but according to his promise, here it is, Christian, this is exciting. After all the doom and gloom, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth, aren't we? That is the heart's desire of every true Christian. Because the world as it is right now, the creation as it is right now, is subjected to a curse from God and everything is decaying. Everything is falling apart. Everything is wearing out like a garment, says the Old Testament. But according to God's plan, and it's leading to this, the utter decimation, disintegration, dissolution, and judgment of the heavens and the earth that was created in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because God has a new plan. It's a beautiful new plan. We're going to see that in Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. And when it says, John looks up and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a perfect heaven and a perfect earth, an eternal heaven and an eternal earth that will last forever without defect. That's what we're looking for. That is good news. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 20. So that's what John is referring to when he says in verse 11, before the throne of God, the ultimate judge, earth and heaven just poof, pass away. So where is this judgment taking place? It is taking place somewhere in uninhabited space before the throne of God. That's all I can tell you. And no place was found for the earth and the heavens at the time of judgment. Well, let's go on to point number two. So we got the worthiness of the judge. God, the perfect judge. Now, well, who's going to be judged at this time? Because there are some Christians who have written in commentaries and they believe this is the judgment of all people of all ages. This is resurrected Christians of all time. This is resurrected Old Testament saints of all time. This is resurrected tribulation martyrs. This is resurrected unbelievers of all time. 
So everybody's going to be there all at once, judged at the same time. And I'd say that's just simply not true. It's not true according to the context. We've had plenty of people judged prior to this event. We've had other people resurrected prior to this event. This is a resurrection event and a judgment of a different kind, of a different order. I would say the Bible clearly teaches that God's judgment on people ultimately is in phases. He does it incrementally, little by little, according to His plan. There's a progression to it. Not everybody is judged all at the same time. And that's what your typical amillennialist theologian will do, is conflate everything and say that everybody from all ages will be judged all at the same time before the great white throne judgment. So you as a Christian could be standing right next to Hitler for all you know. Let's say no. That is clearly not what Scripture teaches. That the judgments in the Bible ultimate eschatological end-of-the-age judgments happen in phases or stages or progressively or incrementally. And some people might say, well, that's crazy. And I'd say, no, it's not, because that's true of a lot of doctrines in the Bible. Did you know that God created things the same way in phases? He didn't create everything in one, day one. In the beginning, God created everything. Poof, chapter two. No, God created in phases. Day one, He created something. Lightness and darkness. Day two, he created something. The expanse, day three, he created something. Day four, the planets. Day five, the animals. Day six, the land animals. And then humanity. He did it progressively. So creation happens in phases. Why can't judgment happen in phases? Especially when Scripture teaches that it does. Other doctrines as well. The Bible was not written all at once. Poof! There's 66 books. All instant, no, the, the Bible was written progressively. So that's progressive revelation. God gave revelation in phases, incrementally, here a little, there a little. As a matter of fact, over, uh, over 1,500 years the Bible was written and composed and put together by 40 different authors. That is progression. So judgment happens in phases. Creation happens in phases. Revelation happens in phases. An amazing thing, salvation even happens in phases. Make sure you're careful of what I'm saying here. There's justification. That's the moment you believe God declares you righteous. You are sinless, totally forgiven. That's justification. That's the first phase when you believe the gospel. Then there's another phase of salvation called sanctification, where the Spirit of God works in you in conjunction with His Word to make us and conform us into the likeness of Christ, where our sins are forgiven, but He's making us, practically speaking, more Christ-like. That's a different phase than justification. So salvation happens in phases. Justification, total forgiveness of sin. Sanctification, growing practically into Christ-likeness. Then when you die and go to heaven as a Christian, poof, your sin nature is eradicated. That's another phase of salvation called glorification. So even salvation happens in phases. Justification, sanctification, glorification, you're not even finished yet. Because in the last phase of salvation is resurrection. That's Romans chapter 8. Resurrection happens at the very end. So there's four phases right there of our salvation we have in Christ. So judgment happens in phases as well. And I listed that on the back of your bulletin there so you can see the different phases progressively and chronologically of how the judgments happen. And just so you're not confused, all that just to say in verses 12 and 13 that this judgment in 12 and 13 of the great white throne judgment is strictly a judgment of unbelievers. These are unbelievers being judged. They're being raised from the dead and judged by God. All believers throughout history have already been judged. They've already been resurrected, judged, rewarded, and helping Christ rule. So they're not being judged. Believers are not being judged in uh, 12 and following in the great white throne judgment. So the great white throne judgment is a bad time of judgment. No good news. Only unbelievers are being judged at this judgment. Because that was last week when we saw that tribulation saints were resurrected and awarded by Christ. That was before the millennium. And those sitting on thrones. And Old Testament saints were judged, resurrected, and rewarded by God before the millennium. The Christian church, believing Christians, are judged or and resurrected before the millennium. As a matter of fact, when a Christian dies, you are judged. Every soul that dies is judged immediately. In one way, you either go to separation from God or Jesus' immediate presence, which the Bible would call, if you're an unbeliever, you go to Hades. That's the grave. That's being separated from God out of his presence. Not an eternal hell, but you're separated in torment, like Luke says. And if you're a believer, you go immediately into paradise or the presence of God or the presence of heaven in Abraham's bosom. 
being reserved there until you get a resurrection body in the future, as Revelation 6 would say, that our souls are before the throne of God until we're given a resurrection body. So in that respect, everybody is judged upon death, and then Christians are resurrected at the rapture. And that happens before the millennium. So different phases. The point being in this passage, the great white throne judgment is nothing but unbelievers all throughout the ages. Verse 12, look at it. And I saw the dead, the dead. So that has like a double meaning. These weren't primarily the physical dead as much as they were spiritually dead. They were dead to the gospel. They were dead to truth. They resisted Christ. They hated God. They worshiped Satan, especially those during the tribulation who rejected the gospel and worshiped the beast and took his mark upon willingly, joyfully, proudly mark of the beast on either wrist or forehead. Talk about being proud of something. When you stick something on your forehead, boy, you're really proud of it, aren't you? So that's who's being judged. It's the dead, spiritually dead. And some people will say, well, this is so unfair. Well, it's not unfair because Scripture's clear. These dead, these unbelievers, knew what they did. They knew what they rejected. It was a willful, knowing, deliberate rejection of God and His truth and of the gospel. We know that from other passages. So the dead are unbelievers, spiritually speaking. And I saw the dead. And listen to the terminology, the great and the small. This is every, see, it's everybody of all ages. From the time of Cain, who killed his brother in unbelief, all the way to the very last day of an unbeliever. That's who's here. Great and small, everybody. No one will escape. Your money will not save you. Your kingdoms will not save you. Your reputation will not save you. This is the great leveling ground of the judge God, of people who are in unbelief of all ages. And then it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. I saw the dead standing. How's that possible? How do dead people stand? Because it's a resurrection. Because it goes on to tell us, verse 13 is it's a resurrection. They were resurrected in physical bodies and then judged by God. You mean unbelievers are going to get a resurrection body? Absolutely, because that is exactly what Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says. That is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 5 when he said there will be a resurrection of the righteous and a resurrection of the condemned. Unbelievers are going to get a physical, eternal resurrection body that is physical, and they will be judged in that physical, eternal resurrection body that is spiritual and heavenly, yet physical. And that's what's going on here. They get a physical resurrection body that will last for eternity. It's amazing. So there's no soul sleep for the dead or perpetual unconsciousness. They are conscious. They get a resurrection body. They're before the throne. They are culpable and guilty. And John sees them in this vision. So there's a resurrection. Not only is there a resurrection of unbelieving dead of all the ages that come up before the throne of God, uh, books were opened. The books of God are opened by the throne. God is a judge and he's ready and he opens the books. And there, apparently there's two sets of books. There's the book of life, which is mentioned specifically here in the text. But also there are other books opened. We don't know exactly what these books are other than they are mentioned. There are certain books mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. The first incident that I could pick up was Exodus 32, 32 in the days of Moses, where Moses referred to a book where God keeps record of sin. And then in Psalms and in Isaiah and Daniel and Malachi and all over the place, you've got these books, the book of life and also these other books. Well, what are these other books? Because that's what's being before the throne of God here. This is the basis of God judging unbelievers. It's in the books. He's looking at the books, heavenly books. They're perfect and accurate books. They are comprehensive books. They're in accordance with truth. But they're real books somehow at a supernatural level. These books are open. The middle of verse 12 says, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The book of life. Daniel 12 refers to the book of life. Apparently it's a book that God has where everybody in the book is going to heaven. Every name in the book is the elect. The book of life. Amazing. Kept and guarded by God. The book of life has already been referred to several times in the book of Revelation. The book of life. If, you are in, if your name is in the book of life, you know God. It's a done deal. If your name is in the book of life, you'll have forgiveness of sin. If your name is in the book of life, you will live with God for eternity. If your name is in the book of life, you will never be condemned by God. You won't face hell. You won't face judgment. If your name is in the book of life, God will not ever remember any sins that you did down here on earth. Isn't that good news? Whoo! Man, I was reading one of the Psalms, can't remember, Psalm 97, where it was talking about the books, and it said that, and what was done in times past on earth will be remembered no more. No more. And I was, hallelujah! I was screaming all by myself. There's a lot of stuff I want to forget about my life. 
That's why God says He cast your sins, if you're a believer, as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? That's infinite. I've, God supernaturally, sovereignly chooses to remember your sins no more. That's forgiveness. That is good news. Man, that, uh, that frees up the conscience, doesn't it? All because of Christ's work on the cross. So that's the book of life. The book of life is in the New Testament all over the place. The book of Hebrews, Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says that anybody's a Christian, their name is in the book of life. The book of Hebrews talks about the church who is in the book of life. Jesus said, don't boast that you can cast out demons and do miracles, but rather rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven, in the book of life. Man, that's good news. So that's what God has before him is he's judging unbelievers of all ages. So God has God and Jesus have these two sets of books or a whole bunch of books, maybe. And these are the books of the deeds that all of humanity has done. That's what those other books are. Deeds we have done all throughout history. Thoughts we have thunk all throughout history. Is that how you say it? Thoughts you have thunk all throughout history. Deeds you have done. Everything. Words you have said. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12. You will have to render account for every idle word you speak at the judgment. Wow! God is an infinite God and apparently He has an infinite pencil that never gives out. And this is all being recorded. I don't know if the angels are writing this down or what. I hope not because I don't want no angels knowing my business. But these are the books of the deeds, the thoughts of the works of every human being including you and including me of all of history. Good deeds, ugly deeds, dirty deeds. It's all there. And because unbelievers cannot be you know, be easy for God at the time of judgment to look over at the book of life, looking at all these unbelievers and say, okay, you're, you're good, you're good, you can go, you can leave, you can... But He can't do that. Nobody standing there at the great white throne judgment is in the book of life. It's, it's a verification. That's the point. You are not in the book of life. I have no basis to forgive your sin. I have no basis to bless you whatsoever. You did, you rejected my Christ. Therefore, I have only one basis of judging you, and that is the book of your deeds. These other books over here. And God does, and He starts delineating and delineating, rendering account for every deed they ever did in their life. And none of those deeds, even their best deeds, cannot earn forgiveness. They can't earn heaven through the best of their deeds, according to Isaiah, is worthless as of filthy rags for the unbeliever. So they only have one fate and one future, and that is condemnation. No forgiveness. You rejected Christ. I don't care how good you think it was or how humanitarian or philanthropic or what your intentions were. It can't accomplish salvation or forgiveness. So the only basis that God has to judge anybody who's an unbeliever are based on their deeds, their thoughts, and their words. It's a scary prospect. Sobering, actually. I want to read one verse in light of this. You don't have to turn there, but just listen carefully in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The conclusion to the book. This is a philosophy of life from a biblical point of view. Ecclesiastes is. A philosophy of life. How to live life in every area. It's amazing. Great book. And this is how it concludes. Here, here's the conclusion to having a biblical philosophy of life. It's good stuff. Verse 13. The conclusion. When all has been heard or when all has been said and done. If you didn't catch anything else I just said in 12 chapters, at least get this. Fear God. Boy, that's good advice. Fear God and keep His commandments. What is the greatest commandment God the Father ever gave? It is believe in my Son, the Savior. It's the greatest commandment. That a command, believing that commandment will save your soul. Fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. No one will escape. Verse 14, for God will bring every act to judgment. Every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden. Man, if you're not a Christian, I understand why uh, you can get overwhelmed living in this life because your conscience continually will just press down on you and haunt you. You can't relieve your own conscience. Did you know that? God won't allow it. God will continue to haunt you by letting you know that you are guilty before Him, the Creator. And that's why so many of these people, especially the rich people in the Hollywood community or whatever else that don't know God, they get caught up in drugs and alcohol. What are they trying to do? Drown out the condemnation of their conscience. That's what this is addressing. For God will bring every act to judgment. They know that they're face when they face death, they face the Creator. There's inevitable accountability for the Creator of the universe. 
For God will judge every act, uh, bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You know, and Christians, we don't escape judgment, a form of judgment either. We will be judged by Jesus and God the Father when we die. When, when does it happen? I'm not sure. I don't believe the Bible tells us, but it's going to happen. It happens after we die. Pointed to men to die once, and then the judgment says Hebrews chapter 9. And then listen to this. This is talking about a judgment of Christian or believers. This is 2 Corinthians 5.10. This is different than the great white throne judgment. And judgment, by the way, isn't, it doesn't always have a negative bad connotation. Judgment can be a good thing and a blessing to those who are being judged because it can be like an awards ceremony. You're judged and you're rewarded for the good things you did. So judgment isn't always bad. So when I speak of judgment of believers, it's not bad. It's not negative. It's not scary. Well, it's kind of scary, but the ultimate results are not condemnation. So listen to the judgment we have to face as believers, as Christians. And the terminology, once again, is very specific. Second Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all, every Christian, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bema judgment. It's a different word for judgment seat. The Bema judgment is the Greek word Bema. What was that? Well, in Paul's day, many times, it was like at the Olympics, it was the stage where you went and you got your gold medal. Man, that's kind of cool. I want to go on that judgment throne. Give me my bronze, my silver, or my gold. Many times that's the way it was utilized. So it's not necessarily just a negative judgment. We must all appear before the Bema judgment or maybe the awards ceremony of God the judge and Jesus the judge. The judgment seat of Christ that each Christian or believer may be recompensed, paid back. That's not with hell. That's not with condemnation. That's not with lashes, as Luke says, for the ungodly. We may be paid back for his or her deeds in the body. So everything you did in service to Christ in this life, supposedly, everything you did as a Christian will be judged, recompensed, and awarded accordingly in terms of your faithfulness or lack of faithfulness on that, whatever that issue is. Uh, we'll be paid back for the deeds that we've done in the body according to what we've done. So everything we do as Christians is going to be judged by God and vetted and we will be awarded. Whether good or bad, Actually, that's not the best translation. The word in Greek is very specific. Bad doesn't mean evil. It's literally whether good or worthless. That's what it means. So everything we do as a Christian, we either do, we either do good things or worthless things. And sometimes those worthless things we actually think are good for the kingdom of God. Oh, Jesus, aren't you pleased with this? And actually, it could just be an idol or a waste of time or our own agenda. And then God looks down and says, no, actually, that was worthless. And then 1 Corinthians 3 says, when we get to heaven before the Bema judgment, God is going to take all of our deeds as Christians and He's going to take a big a supernatural blowtorch and blow it like that. And everything that was wood, hay, and stubble is just going to evaporate and the good stuff will remain. The metal, the gold, the silver, the bronze of things we produced for Christ in this life and those things will be rewarded by God. So this judgment is a judgment of rewards for the believers. Different than the Bema judge, or the uh, Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20. So let's go back to the Great White Throne Judgment where unbelievers are judged according to their works. And they are condemned ultimately because they've rejected the greatest work of all, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then they're going to be punished accordingly. They're going to be punished accordingly. There are degrees in hell. Did you know that? The Gospels are clear. Some will get many lashes. Some will get even more severe lashes. Some are more, some are, they're all are evil, but some are more evil than others. And they're going to give account for it at the judgment day. So that's this real, sobering, future judgment of the ungodly that's, that is yet coming. The great and the small. Verse 13 says, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. People who died at sea throughout the years that were unbelievers, they're going to be resurrected, they're going to be caught up somehow with their soul and their supernatural resurrection body. Boom. Well, how's that going to work? What if when they died at sea, they got eaten by three different sharks and then blah, 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 and you know. Well, God does miracles and He's responsible and He's going to make it happen somehow. Amazingly, give them a supernatural resurrection body. So the sea gave up their dead at this time. So people are going to be resurrected out of the sea if they died there. Uh, and death and Hades gave up their dead which were in them. And those people are going to be resurrected. These are unbelievers. Death and Hades. Those two words go together frequently. They're not synonymous. They don't mean the exact same thing. They complement one another. Death is the state of being dead. Hades is the place of being dead. And they're both bad for the unbeliever. 
So everybody's going to be resurrected. And then they were judged. That's it. Boom. God will judge. And God is a perfect judge. He's a righteous judge. He doesn't make mistakes. He's the ultimate judge, by the way. God is the ultimate judge. That is so important for us to keep that in mind. God is the perfect judge. He's the ultimate judge. God is the only judge who can actually judge the motives of another human's heart. God is the only one that can read the mind of another person. Did you know that? Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God, Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, are God, only the triune God can read the thoughts of another person. Only God knows the thoughts and the intents and motives of another person. That is so important for us. That's why the book of James and other places in the New Testament tell Christians, do not judge one another. Stop it. What it's talking about, quit trying to judge somebody else's motives and intents. Quit trying to judge their thoughts. You don't know their thoughts. You are finite. You are fallen. You are prejudiced. Only God can do that. And Christians need to be reminded of that routinely because we have a natural propensity to be judgmental towards others. I know I do. In my sin. And we need to be reminded. So here's a great verse to remind us. This is a nice verse to remind us. First uh, Samuel, just read it. First Samuel chapter 16. Um, God says it is God who looks at, yeah, men look at the outside, but God who looks at the heart. People were trying to judge David when he was just a little short, squirrely guy. And God says, you got it wrong. Only God can look at the heart. Human beings look at outer appearance and are deceived frequently. So God is the ultimate judge. He's the perfect judge. He says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So those are the judged. They are culpable. They are responsible. And they will be punished accordingly to every wicked deed, thought, and action, and even what they thought was good in their life. But because they rejected Jesus Christ, they will be punished. They will not be in the book of life. They will be consigned to hell forever. And that's point number three. Let's go there. It's the severity of the judgment. These unbelievers who are judged by the righteous judge, the severity of their judgment, perpetual torment and judgment in the lake of fire and hell forever and ever. Well, do I believe that hell is eternal, literal, physical, conscious, hot, isolated, dark, deserved, real, and inescapable? I do. Well, that's morbid. Why do you believe that? Because it's in the Bible. That's the only reason I believe it. I, did you know I never could have invented that on my own as a human? I don't think any human possibly could have ever invented the doctrine of hell as it's taught in the Bible. It is supernaturally given to us by God, a holy, righteous, merciful God. So I believe in eternal hell because it's taught in the Bible. Jesus taught on hell and the nature of it more than anybody else. Jesus, the God-man, taught on it. And so it's real. It cannot be denied or rejected. So that's 14 and 15. It says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That means that every person who ever died who was an unbeliever is going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire forever and ever. This is called uh, The eternal lake of fire is called the second death. The second death is eternal hell. The lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, then he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sad. We saw earlier in chapter 19, verse 20, about the lake of fire. The Antichrist was seized at the end of the tribulation, and with him the false prophet, seized by Jesus, and the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped the image. These two, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. Even more graphic detail was given earlier in Revelation 14, verse 10, about the eternal lake of fire. And the wrath of God, says the beginning of verse 10, will be mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And those thrown in the lake of fire will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Verse 11, And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. That means eternally. Eternal, that's eternal punishment. And they have no rest day and night. No rest. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Like I said, that is sobering. It's the darkest, most ominous, frightening doctrine in the Bible. Yet it is true, this doctrine of eternal hell. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Because that's why we read in Peter earlier, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should 
come to repentance. Jesus came the first time on a mission. He came on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost. That's one of the main reasons that God is being patient. That's one of the main reasons Jesus is waiting. Jesus, why have you waited 2,000 years? Because He's a patient, merciful God waiting for as many to repent and be saved to be a part of His eternal bride. That is the grace of God. So if you have any fear in your mind about and you're not sure about this eternal hell and whether you face those consequences or not, keep in mind that you need to embrace Jesus Christ. You need to embrace the good news. You need to embrace the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross and got punished by God the Father as a substitute for you as a sinner. And literally, Jesus paid the penalty of eternal death in hell on the behalf of a sinner, absorbing the wrath of Almighty God. That is the good news. And all you've got to do is believe. Believe that Jesus did that for you as a sinner. Confess your sin and ask Jesus to save you, and He will. And you'll be transformed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You'll be adopted into His family instantaneously. All of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. Man, that is good news. And with that good news, let's go ahead and go to the Father and thank Him for that great reality. Father, we do thank You for for who You are, God. a complex God. So many attributes about you. Loving and merciful and yet holy and judge. Thank you that we find the balance in the person and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The greatest example to the world of supernatural love and the greatest example to the world of divine wrath and judgment that comes from you. And therein, the greatest human dilemma is resolved. In the infinite mind of your truth, you've revealed to us. Thank you so much for the sacrificial death of the blessed Jesus Christ. For those of us who have been saved, God, thank you for your grace that has saved us. Thank you for continually preserving us. And thank you for the hope of a future with you that you have provided for us. And continue to motivate us in godliness and in holy fear in light of these great truths. And also motivate us to continue to pray for the lost and witness to those who don't know you wherever we go so that more might be rescued by you, so that you might receive the glory. As we commit it all to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.